0: This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering six conversations from our two day coverage of the Liver Meeting 2022, and, instead of the vault, an interview with Inventiva Pharmaceuticals Chief Medical Officer Michael Korman and Stephen Harris. This conversation is actually a composite of the closing conversation from episode 53 and another one from episode 54. In the episode 53 conversation, Jorn Schottenberg starts by discussing a presentation Mazenuridine gave on the developmental mitochondrial uncoupler HU6. As he notes, mitochondrial uncouplers are not new, but they are new to the field of NASH. He then goes on to describe a short 61-day trial that yielded large percentages of patients reducing their liver fat more than 30%, around 40% of the lower dose in the study and 71 or 72 of the two higher doses, and also reducing HbA1c in a medication that appeared safe in this two-month trial. Scott Freeman goes on to credit Jerry Shulman at Yale for his role in developing knowledge about mitochondria in the liver. After which, Jorn and I recall Dr. Marcus Raney the self-described mitochondrial nerd and biohacker who discussed his affection for and belief in the importance of mitochondria during his talk in Barcelona and subsequent Nash Tsunami interview. I believe that was originally Season 3, Episode 24. As the conversation wraps up, Joran raises the idea that a mitochondrial uncoupler might be a short-term induction regimen at the start of a longer therapy. And Scott notes that the idea of induction therapy versus maintenance is gaining traction in Nash. The second part of this conversation comes from my discussion of the REGENERATE trial in Episode 54, REGENERATE being the Phase 3 trial from Intercept for acid in non-serotic NASH. Professor Andrew Sanyal presented a reanalysis of results as the last Monday late breaker. I described the change in pathology reading methodology from the original analysis, in which the entire de- slide deck was distributed randomly between two readers, each of whom read half, and the more modern consensus approach here with two readers each reading every slide separately, trying to achieve consensus, and seeking a third party for adjudication when not possible. If adjudication wasn't possible, slides were not used at all, which might have happened, it sounds like 10 to 15% of the time. I then discussed what I consider the important elements of the results. Better resolution of what now appear to be transitory LDL elevations as compared to long-term safety challenges. A slight drop in the placebo performance and increase in the high-dose performance that makes the higher dose look roughly three times more effective than placebo instead of the two-fold in the old analysis. Premier, Stephen Harrison comments on the larger vastly enhanced safety database in the study and Sven Frank notes that the study suggests there may be significant benefit in halting progression even in patients that do not regress. With over 7,000 on-site attendees and tremendous amounts of positive energy. Deliver Meeting 22 produced exciting presentations, fantastic debates, and searing insights. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, catch everything in this series from us. And when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn discussion group.
1: Yarn
2: Schottenberg.
3: I had looked at an abstract that was presented by mesonured and I'm exploring a new therapeutic concept of the mitochondrial uncouplers. Now that's not totally new, but I think in the field of NASH, it's an interesting one and it had some robust readouts. So I'll bite not going into detail with a lack of time here. So this was parallel session six UH-6 six, once daily oral compound that is a mitochondrial uncoupler. It has some modifications to avoid a rapid absorption and thus has a steady exposition and PK profile. and. This This is a short 61-day study, double-blinded safety and efficacy was assessed over three doses in patients overweight, starting in a BMI of 28, going up to 45. So it's not a liver histology-based trial, stratification on A1C to um, reassemble insulin sensitivity. And the primary endpoint was liver fat change, which I think for this MOA is a valid target. Uh, We've discussed earlier that this must not be the sole truth for every um, therapeutic compound, but here it was explored and secondary endpoints included, of course, safety because these compounds can lead increased resting temperature. And that was actually something that came out of the discussion to probing, you know, do you see safety signals here? And no, the presenter responded. This was a fairly safe, very safe in those patients studied and no increasing base temperature in the in the patients, which, which is what happens if you uncouple mitochondria and, and, and have to get rid of the energy. So 80 uh, patients were enrolled in those three arms. The full analysis said there was a dose-dependent reduction of more than 30% on MRI PDFF, which is the typically explored endpoint. Point thirty percent and more MRI PDFF reduction. The full analysis data set: forty percent, seventy-one percent, and seventy-two percent in the three doses, one hundred fifty mg, three hundred mg, and four hundred fifty mg, respectively. And there was a decrease in A1C. So the authors concluded that using a mitochondrial and coupler, you can defatten the liver. And it was a fairly short trial, eight weeks, I believe. And I haven't mentioned that. So you can, using this type of approach, defatten the liver. And I think it adds to the uh, MOAs that we've seen, and that could be potentially interesting in the in the future,
4: Scott Friedman. Yeah, credit to Jerry Shulman, who's been doing the basic biology, uh, establishing the rationale for mitochondrial and coupler. He gave a very nice talk on Saturday afternoon, establishing some of the underlying biology that justifies the use of these uh, as a potential new therapy. And if people want to know more about the basic biology and biochemistry, uh, hopefully you can access his presentation. But exciting.
0: So, Yarn, uh, I'm back in Barcelona listening to Marcus Ranney talk about going to a costume party when he was 20 years, one years old as Mito Man, because he decided to describe himself as the all time mitochondrial nerd. Now he's going off in a completely different direction with that. But I intend to send him a note on this paper and get his reaction to it because it strikes me that it's aligned with a lot of what he's discussing that consumers and high impact athletes and all those people should be looking at for themselves.
3: Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I thought of him too. And the way he uh, tries to descale it is that he biohacks himself. Now, I think that's a modern word of uh, lifestyle changes And it could be an additional aspect again. If you have a lifestyle change you want to support in the first four to eight weeks with a mitochondrial uncoupler, then take the uncoupler out. I'm not sure you want to be on a coupler for the rest of your life. You know, it's something where you have, comes in, disease dependent, stage dependent treatment, then take it out again and see where you end
4: up. Well, that is a concept that I think has been raised in different contexts of effectively an induction therapy of one sort or another, followed by a maintenance therapy. So I think, you know, maybe it'll be the uncouplers that are the induction. Maybe it'll be other metabolic therapies. of the discussion to centers around how you give the drug. And so, for example, there are drugs that are going to have to be injected, either sub-Q or even IV. And for drugs like that, long-term compliance is going to be challenging. But if you can get a patient in the right direction and then maintain them with oral therapies, uh, in principle, that would be very appealing.
0: So, Joran, let's remember the next time that we have Mazen with us, uh, which will not be at this meeting, we do a three-minute detour and ask him about HU6 because I, I would just love to hear his take on it. I'm going to summarize at a very, very high level. They're up to 2,500 patients. The data that Arun reported Yesterday was based on a change in the re- the reader of, for the 2019 trial. They had two readers. They randomly assigned uh, slides to one or the other. For the 2022 version, they used the consensus method, right? This the same kind of thing that Stephen was describing before, uh, with the idea that if they couldn't adjudicate, they threw out slides. One of the things that I think Arun said yesterday, if I if I heard him correctly, is that 10 to 15 percent of the slides wound up they couldn't get aligned on them, and they wound up not using them. Do I understand that correctly? Was it was 10 to 15 percent that went to adjudication. I might have gotten that wrong. I was a little confused about that. I
1: think that was more of a gestalt answer. I don't think he knew the the exact number but there was a percentage that couldn't be interpreted.
3: Yeah, and and that percentage, I mean, we do not want to lose that data, right? So patient gave the liver tissue, they underwent the trial, and that's where we need to augment uh, the reading by two or three histopathologists who can't agree using some technology that brings us to a robust and final score. Uh, That's my thought. I agree, and I was struck by that number, but one of the things I was struck even more by was what the effect of the number was. So Stephen
0: has argued forever that placebo response rates are the thing that might be affected most by reading strategies. And the most striking thing, I mean, these numbers all clarify with larger sample, but the only thing that dropped was the placebo, the, the imputed placebo response rate from 2019 to 2022 went down from 12% to 9.5%. At the same time that the um, F3 reduction fibrosis went from 22 to 25. Now, neither of those is in and of themselves a big difference. And all it did the statistical significance coupled with sample size, would moved it from 0.002 to point oh oh one. But on an optical significance test, 11 versus 22 and 9 versus 25 look vastly different, at least to me. You know, one is two to one and one is almost three to one. That was number one. The second thing that struck me from Regenerate is at the time it wasn't approved. Much was made of the LDL increase. And the question was, was it going to resolve over time or not? And I think what demonstrated yesterday was that it did resolve over time, right? So if the two issues with the drug were not that great, even if it hits efficacy endpoints, it wasn't striking and that there were safety issues largely around LDL, the LDL resolves, the efficacy data looks better for 25 milligram than it did. And I'm going to ask you guys, because you know this and I, I don't, what else should it take to get this drug approved at this point? And did yesterday's re make a in your mind, a significant contribution to that effort?
1: Well, I won't pretend to read the FDA's mind. I mean, at the end of the day, people that try to do that, you know, are proven wrong more often than they're proven right. I think it all comes down to the therapeutic index and is the juice worth the squeeze, the view worth the climb? And the treatment effect delta on fibrosis is stat sig. Is that clinically significant? Well, I mean, we don't have any treatment for NASH, so you could argue... That if one out of eight patients is having a positive impact, that's more than what we're doing today. So, in theory, I think it would be good to get that drug approved, even if it just has, you know, a small subset of the population that's responding. Having said that, you know, I do think we have a ton of safety data now, you know, 8,000 patient years of data, 1,000 patients have been treated for at least four years. Yeah, we're going to have some issues with gallstones. We're going to have to send some people to cholecystectomy. But I think in the right patient, population, and I say that to mean non serotics that there might be a role for this drug at least early on until we can get other therapies that are more effective and hit more extrahepatic benefits. But I think the data that came out yesterday helped their cause. There's a lot of questions. I asked the question about, you know, these are three new pathologists that read the data set. So I asked, did you reread Baseline? Because if you reread Baseline, you're going to throw out a whole bunch of people that aren't called NASH, right? That just happens. And the comment that Arun made is that they weren't reread. The Baselines were not reread. They just read the end of treatment. So I had questions about that because it was 931 cases, again, that were read. But I thought some were thrown out. So I don't know if the full... 931 actually were included in the analysis. So there's still some little minor questions I have about the methodology and how we got here, but just at a high level, I think they helped their cause yesterday.
2: For me, there were two things. And First of all, see, I'm not sure that they did not look at the baseline biopsies. I just think they did not make the comparison in terms of diagnosis between what was read before and what was the reread now, but I think they looked at both baseline and then the frequent biopsies, but just for, for the comparison. Oh, but I'm not sure I was not involved either. That would make sense. The first thing is, although some of the absolute numbers changed, if my memory is correct, the effect size was more or less the same compared to the first read. And that's, to me, one of the first messages. You can discuss about biopsy and interobserver variability. But if the biopsies are read in the same way, baseline and after treatment, whether it's by one pathologist, two pathologists, the stringent process that Stephen described, for the Akira compound or whether it's even a machine-learned approach, the important thing is that they are read in the same way and then you end up with more or less the same effect size. And you might have differences if you just make cross-sectional comparisons and and diagnostic comparisons cross-sectional. But if you compare pre- and post-treatment, you end up with the same effect size. So that's quite reassuring and quite substantial support for their cause, but also for other histological readings. And it's also for, Stephen, you have very compelling histological data with the Akira compound, but I think this kind of analysis also helps reinforcing that these data are reliable and important data, and we should not always question the liver biopsy if you have a stringent process to analyze the biopsies in the same way pre- and post-treatment. And the second point is indeed, I think, with the fact that you have an impact on fibrosis regression that is confirmed, but if you look at the overall picture with those that worsen and stabilize, you get again that this compound helps you to slow down, the progression of the disease and it's not always powerful enough to have fibrosis regression but another bunch of patients have a benefit by just halting progression of the disease so as long as we do not have very effective other compounds that can help us improve the condition I think this would be really a valuable asset to treat our patients and at least halting disease progression
3: and now back to Roger
2: we hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any
0: questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next Wednesday evening with a wrap-up episode, taking a look at some of the highlights of the meeting from the perspective of folks we may not have heard from yet, including Will Alazawi, who's been with us once, and Moron Costera, who's never been with us before. It's going to be a fantastic session. Till then, stay safe, surf on. Look forward to seeing you again next week on the podcast. Bye-bye now.